This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 at WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, a show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, a show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and I want to let you know today's show is being taped uh, since uh, I will be at the Mohegan Sun Casino and working for several days where they have uh, mixed martial arts contests. So I'll be there. So today's show is a different show. It's not a repeat, uh, but we will not be able to take questions. If you do have a question about the content of today's program, you could reach me at info at alessimd.com. In today's program, I had the good fortune of being able to spend time with my mentor, Dr. James Albers. Dr. Albers is a neurologist Uh, He is now retired uh, from the University of Michigan, where I trained. And I was away last week in Austin, Texas, where they had a special symposium in honor of him receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award by the American Academy of Neuromuscular and Electrodiagnostic Medicine. And I was chosen as one of the speakers to present information relevant to Dr. Albers' life. Uh, he's, the information he's presenting, we talk a lot about electrodiagnostics. So let me give you some background. The electrodiagnostic study that we're talking about, commonly known as an EMG, consists of two parts. A nerve conduction study where you feel a slight electrical poke where we measure the speed by which a nerve carries charge. And then the second part where a small needle electrode is placed into the muscle to see how the muscle and nerve communicate. The goal of these studies is to find out where there is nerve injury, how bad there is nerve injury, and to hopefully be able to predict recovery from injury to a nerve. What's interesting about it is that it's been around since 1953. And really, except for the change in equipment, is still being done the same way. Some of the things he talks about are discharges, and when he uses that term in the conversation, it's really in reference to electrical impulses that we look at on an oscilloscope. So with that, we're going to have an interesting program today, and I'm sure it's something uh, everyone's going to learn from. The other thing I mentioned is that I will be at the Mohegan Sun Uh, for mixed martial arts. Last week, a young man named Patrick Day died in a boxing ring. This is the third such death in the United States since July. The sport of boxing has become more dangerous than it has been in the past. Why? Boxers are bigger, stronger, faster. And what we have worked at here in Connecticut in conjunction with our various institutions and hospitals is to really set up 
regulation to make it safer and to better screen fighters who want to get into a ring or a cage and risk their lives. We do that by performing neurologic exams on fighters before and after each event, whether you win, lose, or draw. So that's been important and has really changed a lot of what's gone on in the fighting world. So these same regulations exist in California, Las Vegas, New Jersey, New York, and naturally Connecticut. So we really have become more and more cautious of this in terms of fighting and the dangers of it. And we have to really keep that in mind that whenever a young person gets into the ring, they really put their life in jeopardy. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with Dr. James Albers, MD, PhD, my mentor, to talk a little bit about electrodiagnostic medicine. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. This is Dr. Anthony Alessi, and I am in Austin, Texas today, um, interviewing my mentor, Dr. James Albers. Um, Dr. Albers, uh, at this meeting of the AANEM, received a Lifetime Achievement Award. And I thought we would take a few minutes to talk about um, his career and the evolution of electrodiagnostic medicine. Jim, welcome to the show. Hi, Tony. Pleasure to be here. Um, Jim, let's talk a little bit about your background and how you became a a neurologist um, from uh, your background, actually, in engineering. Uh, Right. It's, uh, you know, someone said that that I had kind of a Walter Mitty life, and I did. I started in engineering, um, and in engineering school, we didn't have a large number of uh, courses that we could take outside of engineering, so... It wasn't until my junior year I took a biology elective and I took a Shakespeare elective and they were probably the two courses I liked the most that year. And that biology elective led me to um, taking another course in zoology and about that time I met someone in the engineering school, a gentleman by the name of Spencer Bement. And he was just starting a program, not a department obviously, but a program in bioengineering. And I was making uh, choices of whether to start looking for jobs or go to graduate school. And after talking to Spencer, um, I was one of those fortunate people that he pointed out that the federal government, NIH, had funding to support the education of engineers that were interested in biology. It was all about applying engineering principles to biological problems at that time. So I enrolled and applied at the University of Michigan, became a bioengineering graduate student, and discovered there was a whole new world out there. I started taking physiology courses, of course, and, and my whole career changed by meeting someone named Wally Turdlot. Uh, Wally um, is still alive, he's in his mid-90s. Um, he was a neurologist, interested in multiple sclerosis, and he had an interest in attempting to quantify the neurologic examination. So I just sort of morphed into working on some projects with him with a couple other students. 
and I got interested in quantifying tremor. So we had accelerometers. I had a computer that was probably as big as your dining room table. <laughs> that was probably less powerful than the phone that you're holding. And in doing that, uh, one of the fellows um, was working with Wally Turtlelot on a project involving uh, the use of an old drug at that time, amantadine, in treating the tremor of Parkinson's disease. And he started a double-blind trial and I was involved in looking at the data and quantifying the different measures of tremor and hand speed and walking and all these different things. And I just became amazed when we broke the code that how effective these measures that Wally Turlot was using were in actually showing the difference in this medication. It was really, really a, kind of a, a mind-boggling experience from at the time. And as I was going through graduate school, Wally Turtlelot suggested I might think about going to medical school. And probably the farthest thing from my mind. And again, the value of what's available in education, there was an MD-PhD program at the University of Michigan. So I just kind of slipped into that. Uh, it, it, the memories of how strange it was. When I was in medical school in my first year, I was still participating in the electrical engineering department at the University of Michigan as a teaching fellow. So on Saturday mornings, I was teaching a circuits course and um, alternate Saturdays, I was teaching a power course in a laboratory. And the students in EE would ask what I did and i say I was in medical school and they'd look at me like I was either crazy or lying. Sure. But then I'd go back to my medical school class and they ask where I was Saturday and I'd say, well, I was teaching a power course in electrical engineering and I'd get the same look from them. <laughs> so, and I guess it was because of Wally Turtlelot and all the, the studies I'd done with him that it was natural for me. You, know, you think electrical engineering, neurology, they're kind of all involved circuits and had the same kind of problem solving. Um, skills, I think, are used in both fields. And so it was natural for me to, um, it was natural for me to kind of be more interested, I think, in the neurology courses or the neurology teaching at the University of Michigan. Again, I was lucky to be associated with really good teachers. So that's sort of how it went. I kind of knew what I wanted to be, but it had nothing to do with how I started. So do you ever think what would have happened if you loved the Shakespeare course? Uh, yeah. That, <laughs> well, you never know. I probably wouldn't be sitting here. I'm fairly okay. certain of that. I wouldn't be interviewed by you. I'm quite certain. But never know. Uh, well, I, let's talk a little bit about electrodiagnosis. Okay. Um, you uh, worked with some of the people who are really the founders of electrodiagnostic medicine. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and what electrodiagnostic medicine is? Sure. So, so I was very fortunate again. I had uh, people who gave me very, very good advice. And uh, one of the places that I listed very high in looking at residencies was the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Um, again, keep in mind, by this time, I was interested in neurology. I didn't know anything about EMG. And in fact, I thought 
that I was probably going to be really interested in EEG. And in fact, I did a, a three-month block. The way the training worked at the Mayo Clinic then, everything was in a three-month block. And during your second year, you had a lot of exposure to neuropathology, electrophysiology. But the electrophysiology that I was interested in, I thought, was EEG. Of course, that's because of what I did first. How old were you at this point? Uh, 47. No, I was, say, I was probably 20, 28. Okay. 28 years old. Um, and I even went to the director of our residency program and said, you know, I'm really interested in EEG. How about if I spend a little more time in EEG in my elective? Because I don't know much about this EMG thing. I'm not that... I don't think I'm interested in that. I don't know what, what they do, but it's not what I'm interested in. And he thought for about two seconds and said no. And I thought, well, that's okay. So then I went into the EMG laboratory. Uh, this, I started in January. It was in Rochester. It was bitter cold. Um, I wasn't particularly looking forward to it, which was unusual because everything else I've been very excited sure. about there. And I happened that morning to run into the person who was directing the EMG laboratory at that time, someone by the name of Jasper Dalby, a name that's familiar to sure. everyone here. And Jasper was a direct descendant of Ed Lambert, and Ed Lambert was still in the laboratory. Um, he was probably in his 70s at that time, or his late 60s, but he was around regularly. Um, one of the things I remember is after a few months of this and following the rigid training program that Jasper Dalby had, which I suspect came from Ed Lambert, of in the first three months, the first month, uh, you weren't allowed to do very much, but you observed and worked with someone in their third month yeah. who became, like, to you, the smartest person in the world. Um, and then you passed a series of examinations and a ex series of tests. And then in your second month, you started to, to work alone with, with a, you know, supervision, of course, and sure. someone in the room often. And then in your third month, you not only worked alone, you were also mentoring and teaching the person that was there for their first month. And then... It was kind of fun because they thought you were the smartest person yeah. alive. That's right. So electrophysiology, for me, if you think about it, was kind of a natural extension for, from engineering. Um, it was wiring and circuitry and using equipment back in the 70s that was exactly like the equipment I would use in my electrical engineering laboratory. Oscilloscopes, most things were kind of jury-rigged and everybody would buy the components and get a special kind of amplifier and good speakers. And Of course, I knew all about filters and how they worked and why sure. you'd have them. Um, so the, to be in a laboratory where you're working with people with problems, trying to solve their problem, and you were using... Um, electrical equipment to depolarize nerves, to stimulate them, and then to record from the response, from muscle or from skin. Uh, to me, suddenly, 
thought, gee, I, here I was thinking I was going to get out of this, but this is, this is really fun. The other part was that we worked with uh, excellent technicians who would hook up the electrodes and things with us, although in the first month we were supposed to do it ourselves because um, we worked as technicians. But there was all this time, there's 10, 15, sometimes 30 minutes while you were doing nerve induction studies, and it was very difficult for me to just sit there and not be talking to the patient. Right. And I realized what a wonderful opportunity. In fact, I, I have a list. I made a list once of all the things I learned from the patients that I'd missed in the history. You, know, you talk about listening to the patient. Um, but I can remember a patient with myasthenia gravis, and she kept saying to me, you know, this, this all started after I, I first took penicillamine. Could that be it? And I said, no, 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 I'm pretty sure nothing to do with that, and I'm busy doing my repetitive stimulation. Right. She said, God, I, I really thought it might be the penicillamine. <laughs> going, and about the eighth time she said it, I remember thinking, uh, why not? <laughs> and I could find no cases of it except one remote abstract. We didn't have Google. This is in sure. the library. Yeah. An abstract from Czechoslovakia translated into English about a patient with rheumatoid arthritis started on penicillamine who developed myosin gravis. Wow. So as far as I know, this woman was the second case. Um, and as you know, like everything I did, of course, I wrote it up. And sure. Got some people involved and got some help. And sure enough, it was the penicillamine because we stopped it. And in three months, her disease disappeared. So it was part of that magic, the time you had with the patient. Um, I also found it interesting that I learned more often talking to the patient in the EMG laboratory, probably because I've got them wired and I'm giving them shocks and asking yeah. them questions. Sure. Yeah, you know, they're, of course they're gonna tell me the truth. <laughs> it was, uh, uh, and it was in that environment that patients I thought were more comfortable to free associate with me during that 15 or 20 minutes, even if I'd seen them in the clinic for 45 minutes. Sure. Um, and often the things we dealt with really led to a solution, but had nothing to do with what I thought I was looking for when I started. So, so that to me was kind of the magical chemistry. And then um, I won't say I enjoyed, but I, I, I took a certain amount of pleasure from how much you could learn from the needle examination because this was a whole other part of electrophysiology where you're recording from muscles. And you know, because I'd had this interest in tremor and movement disorders, it was so fascinating to me to watch the motor units and watch how hardwired the system was that someone could practice. They couldn't change the order in which the motor units started firing when they contracted a muscle. All of this was fixed. And even today, it's not completely clear to me how it works, but it was fun to watch, and it was so useful. And the fact that also, I didn't have to wait for an imaging study, I didn't have to wait for a laboratory test. So often, I got the answer to the clinical question that was being asked just in that 45 minutes that I was with the patient. Um, I also 
enjoyed the fact patients, unlike in, in the clinic where there's never enough time, there's something magical about the EMG setting where when you're done, people are ready to leave. In fact, I can remember times I would say, I'll be back in a minute. I'd go out and I'd come back ready to tell them the whole answer. And the patient was already dressed and out the door. Sure. Chase down the hall. <laughs> say, wait, I have a few more questions. Just the opposite of the clinic. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a short break. Okay. And then we're going to be back with uh, Dr. James Albers, um, who is um, receiving the Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Academy of Neuromuscular and Electrodiagnostic Medicine. We're talking about electrodiagnostic studies. Um, you're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on the air and we're chatting with uh, Dr. James Albers about kind of the historical aspects, not only of his career, but electrodiagnostic medicine. And, and, and Jim, uh, let me bring up the subject. A lot of young people today I, I meet and, you know, really are, are gifted and, and are interested in medicine. But when I say, uh, do you, why don't you go to medical school, um, much like one of your mentors did, uh, the answer is uh, it just takes a long time. Um, and I find that interesting because everybody's worried about the time it takes, uh, sometimes the expense uh, yes. of going to medical school. But, I mean, your career and your background going through electrical engineering, then to medical school, and then to residency, uh, accumulated a lot of years of training um, to get where you were. Well, what do you say to someone like that? So the first thing I say is that after the first year or so of medical school, I didn't really feel like I was still in school. Now, my mother-in-law knew I was still in school. <laughs> I was always asking, when's he going to get out of school? But I found it so exciting. And all the things, the way the basic science now are integrated into the clinical science. Sure. Most medical schools, you start seeing patients right away. Um, after being an engineering student, and being a little bit disenchanted because I still couldn't fix my television, but here I was, someone with a degree in electrical engineering, you think I'd know something practical. I, I can still remember how excited I was when I learned to put in an IV. It's like I've actually learned something that I can do that's practical. And that excitement just kind of built my residency. I can't say that every moment of my residency was sheer joy because I, I, I know it wasn't. I guess one of the gifts of our mind is we forget the bad times, we remember so well the good times. Sure. But the, the second, third, and fourth years of medical school and all of my residency, really I felt like I'm doing what I'm gonna be doing for most of my life. It wasn't always correct, but I didn't have a feeling of um, drudgery and still being in school. I, I was doing things I wanted to do. So I, I was actually afraid you were going to ask me about the financial part because I don't have an answer for that. But the time part was, yeah. was never, never an issue. I didn't, I didn't feel I was missing out on much. I might have been a little covetous of my friends who were working and going on fancy vacations and things. But yeah. I was doing things like coming to these meetings <laughs> yeah. as, as a resident. So... 
So I was living my life, I was having fun, started a family when I was in my residency. Uh, it might not have been completely fair to my wife because I think she had a bigger workload than I did. Yeah, uh, I think we all realize yeah. that. But um, the uh, time, I guess I would tell people that of all the people that you know that have gone through it, you never hear that as a complaint. In fact, I can't remember one of my colleagues ever saying, you know, I wish, I wish I hadn't had to spend that four years in residency or that eight extra years. Most people think they started their career. And in many ways, it's not different what happens, say, in business now. Some people, they start out, they do different aspects. It takes them a long time to get where they want to be. But they don't think of that as being in school. It's part of their training, though. Yeah, I don't think I've ever learned more in my educational career than I did in residency and especially in fellowship. And I tell people right. that all the time, when people are thinking of doing whether they want to do a fellowship yep. or not, it, it's such an intricate part because it's just a great part of it. But I want to get to the point where we always talk about positive reinforcement. And somebody else recognizes something in you that you didn't recognize. And obviously that's the case with you. I mean, uh, Wally Turtelot recognized something in you. Um, to make you want to go to medical school. And I know you spent a lot of time working with Jasper Dalby, who yep. is highly respected for all of his contributions. Was that a big factor um, in Absol your career? Absolutely. Um, Jasper Dalby uh, was a giant in terms of being a leader and an educator. And I can't sit here and say that he was an easy teacher because sometimes it was difficult in terms of all the preparation that I would do just to make sure I didn't disappoint him. And we, we used to have a, have a joke among the residents that um, Jasper Dalby encouraged us to always question everything, ask questions. But then you would and you never answered them. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, this is a paradox. It's saying, question everything. I'd question it. Um, and then what he, what he usually would do is answer a question with a question. And his question was usually something that you'd say, gee, I don't know, but I know how to do that. And you'd end up going back into, into the room with the patient and doing something. Um, I've got one vivid memory that's so typical of Jasper Dalby, and it was I came out, I saw a patient who had myokinemic discharges, and it's a type of discharge that is very difficult to miss. It's a fairly exciting sound, and yet it's one that's associated with certain kinds of problems, and that wasn't the issue. I, I knew what it was. It was someone who'd had a radiation plexopathy, we thought, that's why she was having an evaluation. And here are these discharges. And I <coughs> went out and as I was going over the case with him and showing what I'd written. I said, uh, where do those discharges originate? Thinking he was gonna be, he's gonna say in the brachial plexus, no, down with the muscle, maybe the spinal cord. And I was gonna turn in my form and go to the next patient who was waiting. And he said, well, how would you figure that out? And it was one of those, the little man in my head was going, oh, oh, you shouldn't have asked that question because this is going to take a while. And I sat there and I thought of some things and he said, well, 
Uh, could you do something? Is there a way you could block them? Like doing an F response from the wrist. And I thought, again, oh, oh, this is going to take a long time. And he said, you know, there's someone else to see your next patient. Go in, let's go in and ask her if she would mind if we spent 45 minutes or an hour. So I went back in that room and used up at that time. We printed everything out on sure. paper. So I, I must have gone through about a, a mile and a half of paper that was all over the floor. And what we ended up doing was stimulating randomly at the patient's wrist and, of course, sending a signal up the arm. And what would happen is these discharges would disappear because they were being blocked. And then by knowing the conduction velocity of the F response in the arm, you could look at these large areas of blockage and you figure out how much time had lapsed. And then you knew the length of the person's arm from their level of the cervical spine down to the shoulder. And it turned out when you figure out this blockage was just about the period of time it would get right to the level of the brachial plexus. So the answer was, that he never told me, the answer was they're originating right at the level of the nerve in the brachial plexus. And I came out and I said, well, it looks like they're originating here. And he says, well, that's obvious. <laughs> that's what it probably was. But it was just an example of his, just, he was the best Socratic teacher I've ever had at answering every question with a question. And it, it wasn't always fast or easy, but I learned so much following, or following up rather, on the questions that he would ask. And you'd end up answering a series of questions and you would end up answering your own question. Now, I'm not saying he didn't give us help. He nudged us in the right direction. I wouldn't have figured out how to do this without him nudging me um, and giving me some hints because he obviously, he obviously knew. The other gift he had, which I think is so important to people who are educators, and I think it is a real gift, his gift was he could identify very rapidly with a series of questions, like if you were presenting a patient to him and he was asking you questions, he could identify the asymptote of your level of knowledge. And he had this gift of answering or asking two questions you could answer, one you couldn't, two questions you could answer, and you could feel him bouncing right around the threshold of where you were. So he was very difficult to fool. Um, we used to make jokes, well, be sure you start off, play dumb, miss an easy question, and then he'll bounce around there. But the rule was two correct answers, one wrong answer. And I've tried my whole career to do that. And I think you know from sure. time to that is incredibly difficult to do. But he was very, very good at it. And he used that as his teaching tool because wow. then he would focus his questions right where you needed help. And it's just, just a wonderful experience. We're going to take another short break. Good. And then we're going to be back for the last segment with uh, Dr. Albers. Uh, we're going to talk about the future of electrodiagnostic medicine. And then we'll uh, wrap up there. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. 
We're back with uh, Dr. James Albers, and uh, he has been my mentor when I was at the University of Michigan. I could see why we got along, because uh, when I went to medical school in Italy, all my exams were oral in Italian. There you go. So I did learn how to say however in a lot of different ways, um, and I assume you did the same <laughs> with uh, Dr. Dalby. Absolutely. But. Let's talk about electrodiagnostic studies. It's kind of interesting because really uh, the evolution from 1953 or so with yes. uh, Dr. Lambert, uh, we're still doing these tests the same way, yep, essentially, um, since that time. I mean, the equipment's changed, but it's still a very basic nerve conduction study and needle electromyographic examination. Absolutely. Why has it withstood this test of time? I mean, people always said, well, Ultrasound's going to take the place of it. MRI is going to take the place. But nothing has taken the place of electrodiagnostic medicine. Uh, why is that? And, and really, what is the future of electrodiagnostic I'm not sure I know the answer as to why, other than the fact that you're looking at very basic physiology. And you're asking relatively simple questions to which every step along the way, you often get almost a yes-no answer that you can form this algorithm of how you're going to solve a problem, how you're going to answer a problem. And the information you get is very practical. And it's, it's so simple that the next step probably involves things that bypass that entirely, if there's a genetic answer to a certain sure. disease. So those are the things that you look at. But what can't be replaced in my mind, and what I hope is never changed, is the fact that this is a hands-on evaluation. Now, so is ultrasound and many other things, but a hand-on evaluation, to me, the, the electrodiagnostic examination that we used to perform together in the laboratory really, in some ways, was no different than my reflex hammer. It was just a tool I used. It became an extension of my examination, mm -hmm. became part of what I did, and I think that information and that time, it, it's the whole amalgam of how you interact with the patient, what information you're getting, and how you can use it to predict the future for the patient or to direct treatment. The, those are the parts that I don't think are going to change in the immediate future. Well, that's comforting to know. <laughs> um, and um, I, I just want to take this time to thank you, Jim. I mean, um, Last night we got together with all the fellows and, and really so many people came in, down here to Austin and, um, you know, you have had such a, a tremendous impact on my life uh, in terms of not only professionally but personally. And those were the stories we heard last night um, from that standpoint. Uh, I mean, I think there are, what, 58 fellows now? Uh, it was a huge number of uh, fellows and that doesn't even count all the residents who came through. Um, so I'm going to take this time um, to really publicly thank you um, for everything you've done and everything you've contributed to uh, your mentees as well as patients. Tony, thank you very much. And let me just add that, that the gift of academic medicine is that I mentioned last night. I did have a work family. You were part of that family. and all of the residents and fellows who were there. And it's something that, that to me is very magical. It's the highlight of my career. So I've enjoyed working with people like you and that the pleasure from that never ends.
That's great. Thank you again. I hope you all enjoyed today's program and the time I got to spend with uh, Dr. Albers. In t- thinking about the electrodiagnostic studies we've described, it's it's something important that the public and all our listeners should know is that it should be done by a qualified physician. Uh, there are physicians like myself who do fellowship training and spend time really learning more about the study. Sometimes people hear about an EMG and really talk about it being a painful or uncomfortable study. One of the things you'll know when you work with someone who is experienced in performing the study is that it's not that uncomfortable when you really know how to perform it. And it's an important study if you have a nerve injury or a neurologic disorder. So again, um, if you're recommended to have it, uh, be sure you're having the test done by a qualified physician. Many thanks to our studio producer, Mike Olko, has been on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. I'd like to take a couple of moments to also mention a lot of people are asking about various types of vaccination. Should they get it? Should their children get it? Um, There's a political ball going back and forth. You know, we really can't let politics get involved in medicine. And I think the most important thing you could do is ask your doctor. Find a physician you trust with your health, and hopefully you have that person, and ask them, what should I do in this situation? Should I be getting a vaccine? Should I be getting the flu shot? It'll be interesting to hear the answer because everyone's an individual, and we would like to know how that affects us as individuals especially when we're talking about the health of our children. Next week on Healthy Rounds, I'm going to be back live and we'll be able to take all of your questions. Don't forget to download the Healthy Rounds podcast. It can be downloaded free from iTunes. Next up on WTIC is going to be Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that today by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Just go to registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.